readings. In the Lord of truth, Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of mankind, that is the truth. So thank you again, Tristan, for sharing that. I know that that uh, some of us get more out of it than others of us in a message like that. For some of us, that is an interest. For others, it's something new maybe, that kind of thinking and so on. But um, I appreciate it. It's, it's best if you have variations of teachers for a variation of people because some, some will connect more with some and some others will connect more with others. So I don't know if we'll get two of the same this morning or not. <laughs> Might tend to. I realize... I'm having a little bit of a problem as I'm going through Second Peter. I did a little bit of analysis of the last three messages, how fast I'm going, and I realized there'll be another 110 messages in this book. <laughs> and uh, if I teach twice a month, it'll be four and a half years from now. So figure four and a half years to your age when I'll be done. But uh, we'll hope to go a little faster. But it's been, to me, it's been encouraging and challenging to go through this little book. So why don't we just pause for a word of prayer before we go further. Let's just pray right here. Lord, as we approach your holy word, which is a description, Lord, of the truth, we pray, Lord, that you would target that truth into our hearts. Make it a reality. Help us, Lord, to grasp your truth. Help us, Lord, then, Lord, to have it as a part of our lives that it would affect us, affect our lives, and then those that we come in contact with. Lord, your word, your truth, it impacts not only this life, but also eternity. It impacts so much, everything. Lord, we look to you and ask you, Lord, yes, to have mercy on us. Allow us to see yourself this morning, to see your love and your mercy and your way this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a graph that I used last time uh, to give a little bit of a framework for our study. And you can turn to Second Peter, and we will read the first 11 verses of chapter 1. 
to get a perspective and background. Starting at verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained light precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we have been doing last several messages is we have been adding to our faith. Peter says to give all diligence, add to your faith, and then he follows up with seven characteristics of what we should add. And he ends it with a blessing if you do this and a warning for anyone who doesn't. Now, for some Christians, that sounds like a heresy. Add to your faith. What does that sound like? Since the main mantra of the Reformation is we are saved by faith alone. By grace alone, through Christ alone. So if that's true, how can we possibly add to our faith? So I'm going to take a little detour and talk about the Protestant Reformation for a little bit this morning. The Protestant Reformation is 500 years old this year. Does anybody know the date? There's a day. Anybody know it? No, nobody knows. Okay. October 31st, the day we call Hallow's Eve, (laughs) Halloween. That's the day that Martin Luther nailed his now famous 95 Thesis on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
challenging some beliefs and practices of the dominant Roman Catholic Church. And the primary instance why he challenged the, the Catholic was they were selling indulgences. It was the sale of indulgences. And that act, him nailing those or attaching that challenging theses on that door is considered the birthday of the Reformation. And it's 500 years this fall. Indulgences. According to the Roman Catholic Church, an indulgence is a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for their sins. That's after they die. And if you buy an indulgence, it may reduce the temporal punishment after death in that state or process of purification called purgatory. That was a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that was one of the primary things that Martin Luther was challenging. And by that time, this false doctrine of indulgences, selling indulgences to the people, was being really abused because it was a way to raise money. They, people took advantage of the masses when they had Guilt, they felt guilt for their sins, or they felt uh, with a loved one would die, and they they, said, I don't think they're okay. They're probably in purgatory. They're probably suffering. And here would someone come and say, if you buy this indulgence, it'll help them. And it was abused. But the underlying issue was actually... The authority of the scripture versus the authority of the church. The instant that was, was indulgences, but below that it was authority. Are the church's traditions such as purgatory and the sale of indulgence authoritative, or are the scriptures alone authoritative? How do we know what's true, right? Luther challenged the authority of the church's tradition and this position came, became known as sola scriptura, which means scriptures alone. That's Latin for scriptures alone. There are five solas that were developed out of the Reformation. And these five phrases actually summarize the Reformers' basic theological principles. And it was in contrast to the certain teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm going to see the five. Sola means only or alone. And I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce all of these correctly. But soda, sola fide means by faith alone. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Sola gratia, gratia. By grace alone and soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And of course, that would be in reference to the glory that they gave to saints and so on, the Catholic Church. Justification of a sinner is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. That is the kernel of Reformation doctrine. And Reformed doctrine emphasized 
what they understood the Catholic Church to be off on. The Catholic Church had added tradition to scripture, so they were not scripture alone. The Catholics said there is no salvation outside the church, so they replaced Christ as the method of salvation. And the Catholic system required works for salvation, a seeming contradiction to many scriptures in the Bible. I'm going to just read one here. And being found in him, this is Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So the Protestants insisted that the justification of a sinner is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. It seems that Peter contradicts that. Because now he says, add to your faith. At least he seemed to contradict the common outworking of that belief in our modern times. Peter does not tell us to seek faith. We are told to believe, but he say, if you have faith, you are a child of God. Last week, I had this pillar here. As I was studying this week, I added a foundation <laughs> that was not there last week. Faith was not there last week. Faith is the foundation. It is the where everything is built, and in, in essence, Faith is connected to this whole, this whole thing. <clears throat> so, faith is a foundation, and a foundation is of very high importance in the case of a building. But how good is a foundation if nothing gets built on it? I know John D. Martin used a story years ago where he said, suppose, suppose you lived in a major city and they are building, they, well, what they're doing is they're putting a foundation and they spent months putting a foundation. They, they work underground to get this thing all prepared for this whatever they're going to build on top of it. And when they're done with the months of preparation of a foundation, then they put a chicken coop on it. Say, so what irreality is that? A foundation is built to build something on. So, faith is a beginning, but it also needs to be added to. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 17 says, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. <laughs> And so, what are we to believe about the subject of faith, or faith and works? The Catholics believed in a system of faith and works. This system, according to Men of Simons, the system included, well, Men of Simons was another contemporary of the Reformers, and he says the, uh, the, the works of the Catholics, and he has a whole list, I just took the list. It includes legends, histories, fables, Holy days, images, 
holy water, tapers, confessionals, pilgrimages, masses, vespers, purgatory, vigils, times, and bulls, and offerings. And I don't know what all that means, but that's a Catholic system of works. It was in that climate that the Reformation came. You understand what they were opposing? So, should we believe instead the Protestants who insist that salvation is by faith alone? Martin Luther was understood by many to be saying that all one could do to be saved was to have faith in the merits of Christ. That this was the only response God required of human beings and of the only one God accepted. So which one should we believe, the Catholics or the Protestants? That's why you should have friends like Dave Esch who gives you books like this. <laughs> Anabaptism, neither Catholic nor Protestant. There is actually another way. <clears throat> Confusion comes when the Bible condemns one extreme and we think it condones the other extreme that's confusion Menel Simons and then I got that out of this book here because he separated from the state church had well he separated from the Catholics but he was also challenged by the reformers both and he was challenged. His challengers told him this. He said, our belief is that Christ is the Son of God. Well, amen. That's the truth. That his word is truth. Amen. That he purchased us with his blood and truth. Amen. We were regenerated in baptism and we received the Holy Ghost. Therefore, we are the true church and the congregation of Christ. That is how Menno was challenged. He said, we believe all that. Menno's reply is, if your faith is as you say, why do you not do the things which he has commanded you in his word? Since you do not do as he commands and desires, but as you please, it is sufficiently proved that you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, even though you say so. I thought, wow, no wonder this man has a price on his head. He did what John, what John did in 1 John. He said, if you say this and you don't do it, you're a liar. And that's what he basically told them. So, for us... As children of God, if adding to our faith sounds like a heresy, it may be that we've been drinking at the Protestant fountain a little too much. Peter did not drink at that trough. He drank from the living springs, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And out of that, he says, make every effort at every turn in every decision, add to your faith. The wonderful, life-changing avenue of faith, add to it. Build on it. Supplement it. 
So in past messages, we added faith. Uh, added to faith, we added virtue, excellence. We also added knowledge. And we added temperance the last time, which is self-control. For the sake of time, I'm not going to review anymore. If you missed those messages, we're not going to. The only thing I'm going to review here is the idea that these are built on top of each other, but not completely. They're both simultaneous and they're also sequential, which means the ones on the bottom, if they are missing, the ones on the top will not work properly. And yet, you don't have to have everything in order before you start in the top. But these are the foundational ones, and you built your way up. Okay, and uh, a summary of the last three messages. Virtue has to do with capturing the heart for Jesus. Growing in knowledge has to do with informing the heart about Jesus. Temperance has to do with training the heart to live like Jesus. And today we will add patience and godliness. And patience is challenging the heart to continue with Jesus. And... Patience and godliness, like temperance, is what is called the guts of Christianity. It's, it's the area where you're going to need some real courage. If you have your heart captured by Jesus and you have warm, fuzzy feelings in your heart about Jesus and you can sing songs about Jesus that make you cry or dance, that's one thing. And we can go to seminars and we can have Bible studies and we can learn about Jesus. But if we do not go beyond that and go to where the rubber meets the road, then, well, then the rubber doesn't meet the road. When we say that idiom, the rubber meets the road, what are we saying? We are saying it's where the practical reality or the crucial test is. We can say all about as much as we want how much we love Jesus and how we've been saved, and that's good. Praise God. But there comes a time for courage, for stamina, for strength. Here we come to temperance. Did you ever try to reign in your flesh? Was it easy? Was it? Is it? <laughs> Did you ever try to get a grip on your internal impulses and your emotions and your drives? Did you control your eating and your sleeping and your talking and your feeling and your lusting? And did you bring it all under the subjection of Jesus Christ? If you've been in that endeavor, you know that this is not for the faint in heart. That the last message where the Bible says, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. This morning we'll have another area where the rubber meets the road. Peter says, Add to your faith patience. Now, 
Stephen, when you think of patience, what do you think about? Like maybe waiting for your little sister to catch up on her bicycle and you're patiently waiting. Or we can think of waiting patiently for everyone to get to the table so we can eat. The Oxford Dictionary defines patience as the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. That's pretty good, especially when you get in a traffic jam and you have an appointment to make. And you have the ability to sit there without getting angry or upset. And you've got some patience, right? Would you agree that's an excellent characteristic for a, a Christian to have? Someone who believes that nothing happens outside the will of God. God is in charge of everything. Nothing can happen to us outside his will. And if we believe that, we should have lots of that kind of patience, right? If Christians would really believe that, we would all be patient people. The Bible definition of the word patience includes that, but it's broader than that narrow definition that we have discussed so far. As the Bible uses the word patience, it means to stay under, to remain, to have fortitude, to persevere. To endure. And endure is probably the closest thing that we would have. Many Bible Bible translations render this word as endurance or steadfastness. It is the ability to be in an adverse situation and remain consistent, persistent, and unwavering. That's patience. When I was a child, we went wading in some creeks. We had a creek and we had other places. In the summertime, the water was warm. But as we were wading in the creek, we came to a spot where the water was cold. It was a spring adding its water to the creek. And that water was cold. And I remember standing, uh, we would actually, us children would stand right on top of that spring and try to stay there. We grimace and we stay there as long as we could until we couldn't stand it anymore and then we'd jump off because it was so cold on our bare feet, our bare wet feet. <clears throat> we would endure it only so long that that's enough. I'm out of here. Patience is the ability to be in a hard or a difficult situation, a place where you should not or you cannot leave, and to remain there, to persevere, to endure. The equivalent of standing on that spring and just staying there. The pressure is on to give in and to do the wrong thing. And to remain in God's will is very hard. So adding Patience to our love for God means to suffer for doing right. Add to your faith endurance. The Bible is full of examples of people like this 
the Christians in the book of, book of Hebrews were getting discouraged. Now, who were the books? Who were the Christians in Hebrews? Well, they were Christians who had been enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had been made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And they had tasted the good word of God, Bill. And they had tasted the powers of the word to come. That's who they were. But they were now discouraged. It was a hard road that they were on. It looked impossible. And it began to look like it was not worth it. Who were they? Well, they were real people just like you and I. That's what they were. And what does God tell them as they are discouraged? Does he tell them, I'm so sorry, you really do have it hard. I'm going to make it easier for you. I know life isn't fair. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of those who trouble you, and I'll do it right away. What he says. You know what he tells them? They are suffering. They are discouraged. They don't know if they can make it. And he tells them, you have need of patience. Whoa. You have a need, dear Christian. But your need is not relief. Your need is patience. We think we have needs. I came across this statement. There are three musts that hinder our patients. I thought I would share it. Three musts that hinder our patients that hold us back from going on. Number one is I must do well. That means I must be successful. I must. There's must here. I must do well. You must treat me well. And the world must be easy. Really? Let's look at that passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And you can turn there because I'll be looking at a number of verses here. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll start at verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days. In which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that in yourselves, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. That was the past of these discouraged Hebrew Christians. Their victorious past. But now it seems too hard. I think I'm going to give up. Let's keep on reading here. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience. That after you have done the will of God, 
you might receive the promise. And here's the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And if you look at that, you can see that faith is completely wrapped up in the whole idea of patience and endurance. You will not endure without faith. Faith is the foundation of all of these. But you have need of patience. Patience is not optional. Patience is a part of faith. Jesus told the parable of the sower that went out to sow. And he said, you know, how the seed fell on different soils. Well, then he described the seed that fell on good soil. And I want to just describe how he described that. And I'll just read it, Luke 8, Luke 8, chapter 8, verse 15. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and a good heart have heard the word, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. You will not bring forth any fruit without patience, endurance. They have heard the word, Tristan, and they have kept the word, and then they brought forth fruit. There are many Christians who may run well for a time, but the crowns are given for those who complete the race. Another Bible example is Joseph. Joseph is an example of patience. Sold by his brothers, he lost his freedom, he was rejected, he suffered much anguish, he was separated from his loved ones, but he walked in integrity. And so down in Egypt, there he was. And the same thing happened right over again. Rejection, loss of freedom, loss of friendship, went into prison. And even there, he was then forgotten by those who should have not forgotten. But Joseph endured. And when he got out of prison, he was a tried and purified man. But how many of us would have given up before that time? As you look at his life, I wonder if I would have made it. In an earlier message, I had given a possible title for a message that I thought maybe Alan could have. Um, Diseases, discharges, and dead animals, the gospel according to Leviticus. Now I have a title for someone else to go for. Pits, prisons, and palaces. Perseverance according to Joseph. Someone could have a message on that. Every other character quality that we might have, any strengths that we have, is only as good as being steadfast under pressure. You can have... I didn't think about it uh, giving examples... 
You can have giftings and you can put your gift in. You can have abilities and you can put your abilities in. You can have niches or whatever you want. You know, I'm, I'm a teacher, so I have a gifting of teaching. Some might question that, but I'll take that. I do not have perseverance. That teaching will not do me any good in the long run. And whatever gifting you have without perseverance, it will not be any blessing to you. The mature Christian does not give up. There are few more reliable tests of faith than this, that true faith endures. But it's not only in the big things, prisons and pits. How about peer pressure? (laughs) The question can be asked, what does it take to cause me to stop doing the right thing? Does it take a firing squad? Or does it take friends? What does it take to make me stop doing the right thing? And I just found a list of real life situations that I'm just going to read down just to give you an idea then you can add your own. Do I stop being kind when another person offends me in some way or there is something about the person that does not appeal to me. Talk about perseverance and what does it take to stop me. Do I stop being obedient just because I don't agree with the policy or because it is inconvenient to me? Do I stop exercising self-control because I'm discouraged at the moment and want to do something that will make me feel better? Or because my friends are indulging sinfully in something and I don't want to be left out or thought of as a coward. Do I stop seeking God in my Bible and praying daily just because my schedule gets full? Or something doesn't go the way I want want it to go and I'm upset at God? Do I stop maintaining pure thoughts and actions when I'm given opportunity to feed my lust undetected? Do I stop being honest when shading the truth would keep me from being held responsible for wrongdoing or would bring me praise I didn't earn? Do I stop taking hope in the promises of God and become discouraged when I don't see circumstances working out the way I want them to? Or as fast as I want them to? Do I stop being a diligent worker when no one is present to hold me accountable for my work? Or when the work situation isn't what I expected? What does it take to stop me from doing what is right? The test of our character is what it takes to stop us. Patience is remaining faithful to what we know is right, regardless of external pressure. For many Christians, in history and today, that remaining faithful means persecution or death. Us, 
Issues are less traumatic than that, but we need patience just as, as well because we have the world, we have the flesh, and we have the devil. All three of them will make sure we have ample opportunity to bypass God's will, to bypass the cross, to compromise, to surrender. And I'm going to read a few more verses in Hebrews here. I just tie in here. It's in, if you want to turn there, it's six verse, chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And that's exactly what patience is. After you have endured, you will inherit the promise. Peter says, add to your faith patience, steadfastness, endurance. Jesus says, those who endure unto the end shall be saved. Okay, let's go to the next word, which is the last one, godliness here. Add to your patience, godliness. What is godliness? To me, as I studied this, it's easier to get your mind around temperance. Oh, self-control. Oh, yeah, we understand what that is. It's easier to get our mind around patience or endurance. Yeah, we can get that. What is godliness? What is that? I don't know if any ideas, anybody want to blurt something out that's on your tip of your tongue or not. Yes. Is that godly? Oh, your father. <laughs> okay. I thought if if someone says that to my children, I'm not quite completely sure about that. <laughs> but that's right. Good. Yes. God likeness. We'll 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 get to that. For starters, sometimes it's best to get an image in our mind. We, The opposite of godliness is ungodliness. Now, we somehow get a better picture of negative things sometimes than we do positive things. So when you think of that is an ungodly person, you'll get a little better image maybe in your mind. There is no higher compliment that can be given to a Christian hardly than to call him a godly person. That is a high compliment. A person might be a dedicated parent, might be a zealous mission worker, might be a dynamic speaker, or a talented Christian leader, 
But none of those things matter if that person is not godly. And we might say, well, isn't that what godliness is? Being a conscientious parent. Well, let's let's go a little bit further. We could understand the term in the old English sense of God-likeness. And that's what you said. Godliness is God-likeness. And that, that follows that there's a moral resemblance of God in your life. And that could be a description. But it, as I studied, it does not express the real objective sense of the word as it's originally it's there's another word that is a little closer. It is called God wordness. Word, not not W O R D, W A R D. It's word godness. Is actually a better description of the word godliness. It's a state of mind in which is towards God. God as the sole object, as its desire, <clears throat> the central supreme object of its trust and love, and the final source of moral obligation and authority. I know that's sort of a definition that doesn't make sense. This morning, I am in a little bit of a dilemma. I am going to attempt to teach you what godliness is. But I have at least two problems. One is, it is an enormous, enormous subject. There have been whole books written on it, and I have 15 minutes. (laughs) The other is, I feel a very key need in my own heart for these characteristics. So I'm going to describe it to you, something that I feel I have a need in my own heart. And that's not a pleasant place to be. I lack, I fall short. I am in need of the very reality of this godliness. Some of you have advanced further than I have. And you could do a better, uh, better, you could give a better presentation than I could. So, how do I give you a nutshell version of a huge topic, of a huge topic when I also and lacking in the reality that I think I should have. Well, I have chosen to read an excerpt from a man who sought after God. And I thought, as I, as I read this, I thought, this is the heart. This captures the heart of godliness. This, it tells a little bit what our need is today, the lack of godliness we have, and some of the answers. So I'm going to quote... A.W. Tozer, out of his book, um, The Knowledge of the Holy. Yeah, 
And some of you might be familiar with what I'm going to read. He says here, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not whether he at any given time is not what he at any given time may say or do. That's not the most important thing about a man. But what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That goes right into that description of what is and the reality. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true, not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christian that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? That's the question. We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might, with, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. We're talking about godliness. We're talking about Godwardness, our heart towards God. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness makes, only makes her situation all the more tragic. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and the consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to draw inward to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. And that's when it was written back in uh, 1950 about. 
He says the only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them, make corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way towards curing them. He makes a, he makes, now he's going to make an analysis. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. What is reality and what is our description of our God? I will stop there. This is a nutshell version of godliness or God-wordness. which will result in God-likeness. God-likeness is a result of that God-wordness heart. There are many ways to illustrate it, but if we get the nutshell version of it, we'll be okay. How is your devotional life? How is your walk with God? How is your sense of awe and reverence in his presence? Or do other, even good things, crowd out the first cause of the whole universe? The very reason for our existence, what is your heart toward? Peter is encouraging us to keep on adding. You know, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I feel a little negative. I feel like I'm giving a negative presentation right now. <laughs> if you remember the first four verses, it was abundant provision. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need. We have what is needed. To escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, we have those exceeding great and precious promises. We have abundant provisions. There is not a question. There is no excuse. And there's not a question that every one of us will have, can have what we need. And so Peter encourages us to keep on adding. Keep on adding. And then he goes on. Later on, he said, there are false teachers who are going to ravage the church. If you have this, you will be prepared for them. If you do not have this, you will succumb to them. That's pretty well. That's the book in a nutshell. (laughs) Your best defense is a strong offense. And the best way to combat ungodliness 
which is people who have whose hearts have turned away from God, is a heart that is turned towards God. Later on in the chapter, I think it's a very, very famous verse, chapter 3, verse 15. No, it must be chapter 2, uh, it must be in 1 Peter. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be always ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Sanctify the Lord. That is actually the idea of that God-wordness. Set the Lord aside. Turn your heart towards him. Sanctify him in your heart. And then this you can do. Looking into the future, a right relationship with God is necessary for us to have a right relationship with our fellow human beings. And that's where we'll stop this morning in this topic here. If you can, why don't we just stand for prayer? Lord Jesus, we are thankful to you for what you have done for us, what you have done to us, what you have done in us. And Lord, as we read your word and as we believe your word, your desire of what you want to do in us, continue to do in us. Lord, as we look in your word, we, we believe it. And Lord, as we look into your word, we ask you, Lord, for strength. We ask you, Lord, for courage. We ask you, Lord, for persistence and endurance to continue on and to be true, to be, uh, to be true witnesses to you in this world. And, and you have shown us the way to do that. It is not by our words only. It is not even by our life only, but it's by the very spirit and heart that we come across. So, Lord, we pray. I pray, Lord, you would be with us. Grant us the understanding. Grant us the ability to grow. And where we are failing, grant us, Lord, the ability to repair and to move forward. We thank you, Lord, for your much grace and love to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.